0: Welcome to LDS Perspectives Podcast, where we interview amazing LDS scholars about Mormon history, doctrine, and culture. This is Laura Harris-Hills, executive producer of the LDS Perspectives podcast. This week, we are excited to bring you the special three-part episode. We call it our social media toolbox. Podcasters Stephanie Sorensen and Nick Galletti sat down with Michelle Linford, Danae Handy, and Greg Trimble, each experts in social media, to discuss how to maximize our interactions in the online community.
1: Hello, and welcome to LDS Perspectives Podcast. This is Stephanie Sorensen. Today, we're going to be visiting with Michelle Linford. Michelle is the executive director of Epic Deliberate Digital. It's a collaborative nonprofit focused on changing conversations and culture around issues related to kids and technology. Like many parents in the digital age, Michelle has felt the heavy responsibility of helping her children stay safe and healthy in a digital world. She is excited to share what she is learning as she collaborates with people who are trying to create a culture of using technology for good. Michelle's background is a bachelor's degree in psychology and an MBA with an organizational behavior emphasis. She has been a stay-at-home mom since her first child was born, but kept her foot in the business world a little bit by volunteering as a BYU undergraduate management program advisory board member, serving as a volunteer managing editor for the More Good Foundation website, and doing volunteer work as an online community administrator. She's also worked as a part-time nonprofit director and currently serves as the executive director at EPIC. She and her husband, Matt, have been married for almost 20 years and they have three teenage children. So she's very familiar with applying these principles in her home as well. And we are excited to have her with us. Thanks for being
0: here, Michelle. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here.
1: Michelle, let's kind of go back to a little bit of what you mentioned in your biography information. You have volunteered in the pornography prevention space, and so you're aware of the dangers and concerns that parents have. Let's start there and talk a little bit about the culture of danger that has so many
0: parents anxious as they try to
1: navigate the technical world with their children.
0: I don't think there's a parent alive that can't sense that, especially in the church, because we value chastity and morals so much to live in a world where highly graphic sexual content can be accessed at the click of a mouse often or the click of a swipe or these different technologies that we have and often accidental exposure to really bad material can happen at very young ages. And this is a serious problem. It's something that experts around the world are wrestling with and concerned about. I associate with many of those people. I'm very concerned and aware of those dangers. The statistic that I've heard is 86% of accidental exposure happens at home. And so we as parents do have a responsibility and feel that weight, I think, where technology really is advancing much more quickly than any of us can really keep up with.
1: Yeah, and I would add to that, in addition to the danger that parents feel as far as content that their children might come across. There's also a sense of anxiety about the kinds of relationships that can be formed through social media networks, some of them potentially dangerous. And then also the danger of just technology overexposure. We're constantly worried that they're spending too much time on their screens or that they're ignoring other priorities and things like that. So when you have fears for safety, fears for development, fears for scarring because of things they can see, then all of that adds to that sense of anxiety. Absolutely. So the question at that point becomes, how do we begin to navigate through those fears when technology and social media and online relationships and things like that are part of the reality of our children? We have to deal with that. Where do do we
0: start? I think we start there one of the dangers that we face as parents is to pine for days gone by. We're taught scripturally that the spirit teaches us things as they really are, and I think we have to face things as they really are. In our children's world, they aren't growing up the same way we did. Unless you're a young parent on that border between millennials yeah, and yeah, the millennials who are starting to raise families now, most of us had a very different childhood. And I see a lot of parents pining for those days, oh, and children should just be outside. Now, I'm a big fan of that. But I think we need to be careful about not plugging in. We want our children to unplug a little bit more. Maybe we need to plug in a little bit more to the reality, because that's where we're going to get guidance, is if we're dealing with things as they really are. And so that would be, I think, the starting point is, okay, face it square on and then start to figure out what that means for you and your home and your parenting. I just want to add that I think another challenge that parents face is that there are a lot of voices out there telling us how we should be handling this. We don't have firm answers. This is a little bit of a pun, but you know, we're trying to pin down a cloud here. <laughs> and the cloud and all of these technologies, th- there's no formula here. We are discovering and creating and making mistakes and I think engaging with that mindset of we're not going to do this perfectly and that's okay. To embrace that instead of to fear it. To
1: fear, yeah. which is
0: the natural reaction. It is. We and fear what over- we cannot control. Yeah, <laughs> the overwhelm is real. Like you said, there's so many different facets. It isn't just safety. It is time and energy and, okay, is this taken Focus. away from quote-unquote real-life relationships? I think the more we can see it as part of their real life rather than this separate thing and figure out how that can and should be integrated is really important.
1: If we can get to the point where we're willing to acknowledge this is the world that our children live in and we need to better understand it and we need to approach things with that sense of reality, can you give us some ideas about things to discuss in healthy conversations with our children about the use of social media or other tools? How do we kind of talk to them in a way that we're just not constantly regulating?
0: My son is now 18. A couple of years ago, he's like his mom. He's more of a night owl. And he was fiddling on his computer watching videos. And and I was starting to get agitated and tired, go to bed. right? Because of my work, I stopped myself from just chiding him. And I decided to sit down next to him and say, hey, tell me what you're doing. And what he was doing was watching some history videos that were actually very valuable, and we he shared some of them with me, and it became a relationship moment rather than this screen time management moment. It's not easy to do it was something I had to switch something in my brain and my body because I could feel the adrenaline, even i even remembering the moment, I can to to feel bed. yeah, I can feel the agitation. We're so concerned about them and their relationships and whether they're building them. We need to start with that same principle. Okay, this is about my relationship with my child. I really hope that we can, as we move forward in this technical age, that we can reclaim our role as parents. I think that because of all the voices around us and the panic that we feel and the overwhelm and the fact that apps change regularly and the app of focus or the app of concern or, you know, whatever the new latest problematic thing, we have these headlines around us that grab our attention on our social media, can we pull back and say, what is my primary role? My primary role is not technology manager. I don't need to be a technology expert. I am the parent of this child. I'm here to nurture this relationship. And if we can start there, I think it can make a big difference in engaging with a mindset that's more centered and more deliberate and focused.
1: So using that model, let's approach it from a scenario standpoint. My son also a teenager, recently approached me about wanting to have an Instagram account. You and I kind of talked about this previously, and you gave me a lot of great insights about how that conversation could have gone better. Instead of me saying to him, well, you could only have an Instagram account if you did this, did this, didn't do this, and these would be all of the rules. You suggested having a conversation built more around questions. So can you share the kinds of questions that are an important part of healthy conversations about social media or other technology use?
0: Sure, I can definitely share. Now, of course, there's the disclaimer here that I'm no more an expert than anybody else. I just happen to be in this space so I think about it a lot and I interact with a lot of people who help me, you know, sort through this as a parent myself, but I was just recently listening to a TED Talk, actually, about how social media is designed to grab our attention. In this TED Talk, it was interesting, Use used the word agency, that we're losing agency without even realizing it, because the money making is in the more that they can get our attention, the more the advertisers have their... Sp- our pers- brains are being hijacked. There, it's what he said is this is not accidental. Right. The decisions that are being made about how these tools are being created are not accidental. They're very deliberate. And given the way our market model works, they make sense. This isn't malintent. right? I think in most cases, I think most people who are in the space are well-intentioned, but there are just unexpected consequences that come with this, these emerging technologies. And I think that will continue to be the case. So How do we bring that back home? If we can engage our children, especially, we're talking about social media today. So that means old, you know, teenagers, we really should pay attention to the legal limits. Um, That's one guideline because developmentally kids can, you don't want to give a 10-year-old social media that is designed for 13 or 15 or 18 or whatever. Helping our children ask themselves why they want it. What's the purpose? What do they want to use it for? The best tool for using technology that I have sensed is an internal filter, that ability to look inward and say, what do I really want? Why am I doing this? What is this tool doing for me versus what is it doing at me or to me? Right. <laughs> we to act and not be acted upon. And so when we understand that the tools are designed to draw us in and keep us there, I think that's one conversation point to say, hey, you know, before we actually talk about the tool, let's talk about how these tools act on us. And it's not because you're a bad person or I'm a bad person. This happens to everyone. It's universal in the way the human brain gets attached to these tools. I've been very hard on myself. Oh, I wasted time, you know, and we can be really hard on ourselves as parents but I think if we can engage it with a little bit more compassion for ourselves and our kids and really understand, okay, this is a discovery process, and this just maps to the plan. We're here to exercise our agency, to have opposition. Mm-hmm. What are we going to do in the face of these polls, and how can we use this as a tool in a deliberate way? What purpose is it going to serve in your life? When my kids have asked for social media, that's been the question, okay, well, Give me a proposal of what you want it to do and how you want to use it. And often they've just self-selected and said, you know, as I think about it right now, it's just not going to really do much. I don't really need it right now. And they've made decisions from that point without me having to manage a lot of it.
1: One question that we can ask is why? Why do you want this? What is your purpose for using it? Are there any other types of things that we can ask them to help them explore or kind of self-set some good norms and rules so that we don't have to dictate those rules?
0: I like to think about roles and responsibilities. So how would this help you? Do you need it for school? How could it help you with church? So I was a slow adopter with technology just because I wanted to be deliberate and not necessarily just get the latest gadget just because we reached a point where our kids' phones, getting group texts from their young women leaders or whatever, they couldn't. It just, wasn't working. Yeah, it just wasn't working anymore. And so I like to look at roles and responsibilities, different contexts in which they find themselves. And I try to do the same thing. How will this help me as in my church work, in my work work, in my relationship building. I I keep Facebook because it lets me stay connected to people I care about. How I use it, does it always in... Does it reflect the reasons? Does it reflect my values and the purpose? And that's where we can start to build that internal compass of, am I using this or is it using me?
1: Okay. And in your professional space explores the encouragement of using technology for good. How can we do that in these conversations with our children about their social media use? How can we encourage within them the desire to use the tools
0: for good. Because again, we're talking about social media with older children. I do want to add that I think those kinds of conversations are ideally started much younger, where let's say you have a five-year-old who understands object permanence to some degree, and you're doing a video chat with grandma. To be able to say and articulate you see, we're using this tool right now to be able to connect with grandma. Back when I was a kid, we could only use the phone. Isn't this cool? Being able to accentuate the positive. The positive. The prophets have told us that these tools are blessings for the hastening of the work. And that includes building relationships. And so I think, uh, again, what roles in relationships, how is that helping and starting it? as young as possible, not using technology passively as a babysitter, being careful about that in the early stages so that kids can see that, oh, this can make my life richer. This can make my relationships better. I think the more our children hear us verbalizing, because the instinct is to say don't, to only speak up when we see something wrong. If we practice focusing on, again, as early as possible, wherever parents are in their parenting process, to start now to notice when good things are happening, both when we're using it in a way that, oh, that really is building a relationship or that's building my testimony or that's letting me serve someone. Have you ever had an experience on Facebook where you see that somebody's not doing well and it gives you a chance to reach out? Absolutely. Or otherwise you yeah. wouldn't have been able to do that. And so we can teach them and energize them to see what deliberate digital use can look like.
1: Elder Holland gave a talk, I believe it was in the early 2000s, called A Prayer for the Children. Mm -hmm. And in that talk, he said, live the gospel as conspicuously as you can. For me, that was a game changer because I realized that as I do my own daily devotional or my own personal worship, whatever that might be, that I needed to be more deliberate about it and help communicate my reasons and my testimony and things like that of it to my children. And so as you're talking about the use of technology, I can see the connection about being conspicuous about the right ways to use technology that we model and articulate. In Elder Holland's setting, he was talking about don't expect our children to gain testimonies through osmosis, right? right, that we have to bear testimony of principles. So if we use that same pattern and apply it to technology, then again, we don't expect them to just by watching us suddenly know the right way to navigate things, but we're going to have to be verbal and communicative about the tools that we're using, how we use them and why so that they can pick up
0: on those patterns. I love that talk so much. And it really is a wake up call, a parenting wake up call kind of talk. I love that application. I also think that that demands accountability too. It puts us in a position where we have to be more accountable for how we're using technology. I think all of us, or most of us, would confess that we misuse technology plenty in our own lives. We zone out, we use it to escape, we use it to relax, we use it to avoid awkward moments and awkward conversations. Perhaps sometimes what we see in our children in our much more mature state, we still struggle. So we assume
1: that they're just going to bomb it. So
0: modeling and being more deliberate and intentional in our own needs. I think we can be hopeful though, because this was thrust upon us in our adulthood. Pathways can form in the brain. This is exciting. Again, that brain science, you know, understanding psychology and how the human brain works. If brains can be trained On positive tracks early on, that can set them on a trajectory that can be their protection through their lives. We don't need to, nor can we control or do all the work. They have to learn how to do this from the inside out. And I firmly believe that if we help set them on a path and just practice it with them, this is not a one time deal. This is not a conversation. This is a way of living and a mindset. I was listening to Clay Christensen's book. He's a Harvard professor who's also LDS, and he talked about how children of verbal parents end up scoring much higher on literacy tests. This is digital literacy, right? So if we are increasing the number of words (laughs) that our children hear, and I'm holding my phone right now. Guys, I just want you to know that this is what I'm doing right now. Because kids also can sense the double standard where sometimes we're doing exactly what we ask them not to do again, the more transparent we are with our youth, oh, you know what? I just made a mistake. I'm sorry. Let me put my phone down and look you in the eye while you're talking to me and have this ongoing chatter about it. I think it will help. It helps me when I do that because it helps me stay centered in my own choices. And then I feel like they are learning. It's just like anything with parenting. You know, When I'm cooking, I'm chattering about what I'm doing so that they can learn again, not just by osmosis, like Elder Holland said, but actually hearing me speak about their world because they can't learn how to cook by just sort of observing passively. I need to engage them. Mm -hmm. It's like when my kids were little, I used to think, I don't know, it was like, I didn't understand that my children needed me by them. So go clean your room. Hmm. They didn't understand what that meant. And because I didn't understand how a five-year-old brain worked, then I'd get frustrated because, well, that's I not told what a clean you. room yeah. yeah. What they needed was a mom who was there. Okay, well, let's fold these up and put them in your drawer. And that's the, the same thing our kids need with technology. All throughout their lives, let's be by their side, discovering with them, chatting with them, and also learning from them. We can go to the experts about what's happening out there and the latest app, Our kids know a lot, whether or not we let them have the apps on their phones or whatever, their friends around them have them. They know and they can teach us a lot. So tell me about the latest stuff that's going on, you know, and open up conversations where they have the opportunity to be the expert and they have the chance to teach us too. And that brings a lot more of a sense of unity and value and respect rather than this, talking down where we can kind of almost objectify our kids to be controlled and managed rather than people with lives and perspectives and understanding and questions and concerns and excitement about what they're seeing. It sounds like this
1: side-by-side approach to technology would lend itself really well to the council system or collaboration. How have you found that framework to be a good fit for discussions about technology?
0: We engage the council system when we're in over our heads, basically, when something is running a ward or a stake or a family is bigger than we are. And especially with something like technology, we are already in over our heads. And so rather than trying to fight that and counteract it and pretend, this is a myth, I think, that we operate under that, okay, if I just read enough about it, I read about technology all the time, and I still feel like I just... It's still way over my head and way beyond my capabilities. I think that's by design. We don't need to have it all. We just need to know how to tap in to get that inspiration. The council system is God's way to do that because then you are, you are listening to each other and you are creating space for answers that transcend either individual or any individual in the system.
1: Is that something then that helps us to focus on relationships and doctrine rather than the tools and the technology itself? What's the benefit of that?
0: What changes when we do that? Especially because we're connected to technology, we can really get caught up in headlineitis. right? Media has a, its purpose, so I'm not trying to bash the media here, but media often is driven by the negative. Proportionally speaking, you're going to see a lot more headlines about the bad than you will about the good, which is one of the reasons we're doing the work that we're doing. We're trying to balance that. We don't want to ignore the dangers, but if we don't pay attention to the power that right now our culture encourages a focus on the tools. Elder Bednar talked about distraction, you know, that one of the greatest harms of technology is distraction. We've heard this from multiple leaders well, we as parents get distracted. We forget that it isn't about the tool. It is about the relationships. At some level, in the end, it's really quite simple, I think. It's not easy to implement, but the heart of it is very simple if we focus on the relationship. Because if our children know that they can talk to us and that we will listen, what is there to fear? Really, because if we are talking and we are asking and we are listening and we're learning side by side with them, what is there to fear? Because that channel of communication is open, which then opens up the channel of communication with God. I think we really do need to get back to the basics of what it means to be a good parent. And this is age old wisdom, right? This isn't new age wisdom that we have to have because we live in a technological world. I think we can go back to the basics and and figure out what that looks like in our technological world, and help each other do that as parents, instead of, did you read the latest? I'm so afraid, you know, we feed each other's fear. Tell me about what's worked. Tell me about, you know, that we can encourage each other in in what is working too. When I listened to conference this last April, there were two talks that really stood out to me that validated for me my professional work. I didn't want to be working at this stage of my life. Um, and so I, I need encouragement to keep doing it. President Uchtdorf's talk on fear and Elder Bragg's talk on light. President Uchtdorf said, look, managing by fear doesn't work and it can often bring the very things you don't want. And Elder Bragg said, we are designed for light. And I think that those two principles can be very powerful when we think about parenting in a digital age.
1: Wonderful. Thank you, Michelle, for helping us to look at technology carefully, but focus more on relationships and doctrine so that we can apply those tools in positive ways. I appreciate you being with us today. Thanks again for having me. It's been great. This is Stephanie Sorensen, your host. And we are visiting with Denae Handy. Denae has a background in music, but she is currently an instructor at LDS Business College in social media marketing and branding. Today, we'll be discussing how we can apply the principles of social media marketing and branding to our own social media use and in promoting the gospel. Denae is also A public speaker, a teacher. She writes essays and a blog and has been a columnist for Meridian magazine. Thanks for being with us here today. You're
2: welcome. Thanks for having me.
1: Elder Stevenson gave a talk at the BYU Women's Conference in 2017, where he encouraged kind of repeating a theme that Elder Bednar has done several times before about the importance of members of the church taking advantage of social media and using it as an opportunity to spread the gospel or, as Elder Bednar said, to fill the earth as with a flood right, to bring more light and goodness into the world and help people to come to the Savior. Elder Stevenson told us that we have this message of peace and we have an obligation to preach it and to share it. And the tools that are available to us make it so that we can have quite an outreach. But sometimes as members of the church, we're a little bit torn about how we can do this in an authentic way, which we've been asked to do authentically, right? How can we do that And at the same time, not come across as if we're marketing a product or trying to sell something to people.
2: Well, I would probably say that first, one of my favorite stories is the story of President Hinckley taking... People through the temple in Mesa when it was rededicated, and someone mentioned that we didn't have any iconography in the temple. What are the symbols of your faith, basically? And President Hinckley's response was, our people are the symbols of our faith. I feel that that's probably a good place to start when we're talking about authenticity on social media. One of the things that I try to help my students understand is that first, your brand already exists. Your persona is already out there. If you have used any kind of social media ever, there is a brand out there. And then you can, to a certain degree, tailor that brand. But mostly what we're talking about when we talk about authenticity is bringing our most authentic selves to social media. That doesn't necessarily have to mean our happiest, our most cheerful. It just means our best selves. I also think that it's helpful to remember that there is an audience out there. Social media is first and foremost social. We're not writing into a vacuum. There are people out there on the other side of that computer or that phone who are... Consumers of our Absolutely, they are consumers of our brand, if nothing else. I would say that it's not just a matter of discipleship. It's not just a matter of being a Latter-day Saint. I think it's actually incumbent upon anybody who wishes to use a social platform to do so responsibly, which is not to suggest that that's actually what happens, but that doesn't let us off the hook. That still needs to be the case. And so I would say we are the symbols of our faith. We bring our best selves and we are responsible. We own every word. We own every idea. We take responsibility for the impact we have on others. Could you
1: give us a little bit of more of an idea of how that applies not only to the material that we post on social media from our own accounts or our own brands, but also how we interact with others online, whether it be comments or discussion threads or
2: whatever the case might be. Yes, this is the part that I find fascinating, especially in the classroom, because I think a lot of my students think that they can live multiple lives on social media and won't be found out, which is somewhat naive. And they learn in a hurry at one point or another that that's absolutely not true.
1: The danger in that is multiplied when people have a false sense of anonymity, mm-hmm. right? Elder Bednar warned against anonymity and doing things or saying things online that you would never say or do in real life. Right. So we have to be consistent across all of those areas, both the posting and the commenting and any kind of social media participation that we are being an authentic person and not creating an anonymous person that behaves differently than we do. And I think that what guides that is something that you've talked about in your branding class is the idea of creating your own core values and Mm -hmm. letting that drive your brand. Could you comment on how, how you teach your students about that?
2: Absolutely. So... Second or third in the list of developing a brand, first is your name and what people associate with your name, how people think of you when they think of your name or hear your name. And then right after that, we end up at a place that has to do with values. And this is something that I feel we don't always understand how much we're conveying. We are telling people what we value all the time, from very simple things to very complex things. We are making little declarations of our values all the time. And so if we value, for example, intelligent discourse, then that's going to be manifest in everything that we post on social media. Not only that, it should be showing up in our face-to-face interactions as well. If that is something that we truly value, then it should be manifest everywhere.
1: It should be consistent across our whole personal brand.
2: Absolutely. And on the other hand, if we consistently post certain kinds of content, We're telling people that this is something that I value. Now, that's not always a bad thing, but we do have to be careful, and we have to be careful about a lot of things. I'm familiar with someone on social who posts funny memes, Mm -hmm. but often they are shared from another website where he's getting his content. The name of that website includes a vulgar word. profanity. Yeah. Yeah. And so whenever that comes up in my feed, that's the first word that I see, and... It tells me something about the individual posting the content, even though it has nothing to do with the actual content, just the fact that they are comfortable sharing something that includes that kind of language tells me something that they value, or at the very least, they don't give a whole lot of thought to it, right? In that sense, I would say that what we value shows up all the time. Now, if you want to go more specific, let's say that you are trying to build a specific kind of brand and maybe you want to start blogging, maybe you want to get followers on Instagram, maybe you want to build a large Pinterest presence, you can define your terms, you can say, all right, these are the things that I'm going to emphasize, this is the stuff I'm most likely to post, I'm going to kind of drive my audience towards a specific objective. It's
1: focused and specialized.
2: Exactly. And yet even then, what you value is still going to show up. For me, for example, I love humor. I love music. I really enjoy intelligent conversations, although I'll be honest, I kind of like to save those for face-to-face, and I mostly just enjoy having a good time on social media. Well, that is completely in keeping with the brand that I built when I was doing a lot of blogging. It was was very lighthearted when I was writing for Meridian. On the other hand, if I was trying to build a more sober brand, or if I had a particular product I was trying to sell, then it would be something of a disconnect for me to be that silly all the time in my social media. So you can kind of decide to define your own terms, you can set your boundaries. Having said all of that, regardless of how you want to define your brand, who you are, and what you value, and what matters to you. And when there's another thing we talk about in these classes, having to do with what is non negotiable in your life, where you draw your lines, and you will never cross those lines, that is going to show up whether you like it or know it or not. And so that's why it's very important that you take a look at yourself. And this is why I teach a whole semester on this. Just take a look at yourself and say, all right, what do I value? And does that show up on my brand?
1: You mentioned to me once an Exercise that you have your students do where mm-hmm. they look at their own social media and, and each other's mm-hmm. and ide- try to identify core values based on that. Could you tell us a little bit about that and what yeah, they learned from that exercise? Because I think it's something that each one of us could kind of do, not as a homework assignment, but just as a personal analysis to see how
2: we're doing as well. Yeah. Yeah. So this is something we have a lot of fun with this actually. I'll give the students a little bit of a heads up. Go in and clean up your social, you know, go in and, and tidy it up the way you want it to be seen by others. And then I'm going to assign you partners. And what I want you to do is I want you to tell your partner, and I think that this is perfectly fine. Tell your partner what you hope they see on your social. What do, what do you hope is coming through? What are you
1: claiming your values yeah. are?
2: Yeah, that's, this is my brand. And this is what I hope you see. And then they're very honest with each other. Sometimes they see it and sometimes they don't. Or, and this is kind of fun too, they might see something else and and tell you, you know, I I see more of a a sense of humor here, or I see uh, you really love poetry, or I mean, there are any number of things. And upon reflection, you'll think, well, what do you know? That is something that is important to me. And apparently it's evident because someone who hardly knows me is able to, to recognize that. That's a really, uh, a very productive thing to do, especially if you've decided to make social media something of a profession. So let's say instead of just hanging out on Facebook and commenting on your, on your kids' pictures or something, you decide that you actually want to do something professionally. You want to write, you want to blog, any number of things. It is not a bad idea to find a couple of trusted people either on or off social and ask them. What do you see? Do you see this? Do you see that I love crafts? Do you see that I sew well? Do you see that I'm a quilter? I mean, whatever your thing happens to be.
1: Let's wrap up by talking about some specific tools that we can use to have more consistency and brand authenticity in our social media use. Okay.
2: So as I've mentioned before, one of the best things you can do is get a friend get a partner who will give you uh, honest critique about what they're seeing on social. That's always helpful because we have blind spots. Another thing that we can do, and I I don't think that we talk about this often enough, is that strange little tool, the hashtag. The purpose of a hashtag is to organize ideas. And if you're carefully using hashtags on your platforms, you'll begin to aggregate a certain audience and comparable or complementary ideas to those of your own. You'll be able to bring together like-minded people. That will be very revealing. If you start to bring together people who, upon further examination, don't necessarily seem to share your values or, or, or have a presence on social media that you're not comfortable with, that is a great and kind of a quick way to examine your own, your own social media and the things that you're posting there. I would say that the delete button is your best friend on social media, including your own. There's nothing wrong with posting something and an hour later thinking "Hmm, this is not the message I want to put out there and pull out that delete button and just, just get rid of it. That's the beauty of the Internet. You can just get rid of it along those same lines. If you don't want negativity, especially hostility, hostility, antagonism on your platforms, you have every right to use that delete button there too. think of your social media platforms as your home as a place where you are able to be your best self. It's your virtual living room. It is. And where you can bring your friends together and you can enjoy each other's company and you can share ideas. And anybody who comes in there and tracks Matt on the carpet and kicks the cat and- Turns darts Throws darts at your portrait. <laughs> that's right. They're shown the door. And you can do the same thing on, uh, on your social media. And, and absolutely, I, that's one of the things that I would encourage you the most. Be brave enough to say this far and no further following is actually a very useful tool in getting your brand established. Be careful about who you follow. Give you a couple little pointers. As an example, Pinterest, there are a lot of times when certain boards, for example, are really great, and they're completely fitting with your brand. Be careful about following pinners, because the people who actually post those boards may have other boards that are not in keeping with your brand. And so follow, for example, follow boards instead of individuals, exactly follow hashtags instead of handles. And that will kind of help you to uh, keep what's happening outside of your own platforms, consistent with what is happening in your platforms. Don't be afraid to use your camera. Honestly, people like pictures. And people like video. And so if you can take pictures and video of things that are relevant and meaningful, then you're going to have a better time with establishing and building your brand. At the same time, one of the best tools that you have available to you is the off button on your phone. There comes a time when social media interferes with social. And so know when enough is enough. My daughter was for a long time really building an audience on Instagram and was loving it, was enjoying it. But she found that every moment she was spending with her baby was all about the next best picture and then editing the picture and then adding the right hashtags and and adding the comments. And she just wasn't enjoying her baby anymore. And so also be self-aware and courageous enough to draw your lines and to, to turn off that phone, turn off that camera and be fully engaged with the people that matter the most.
1: Those are some great tips. It was Elder Bednar in the Sweet the Earth is with a Flood Education Week talk in August of 2014, where one of the four tips that he gave was to be wise and vigilant. So in addition to everything that we've talked about today, about being authentic and consistent and uplifting others and letting our brand literally shine through based on our core values, we do need to remember this idea of being wise and vigilant and not letting social media overtake our actual living, mm-hmm. where we are the content that we can later share. Thank you so much, Danae, for being with us today. We appreciate your comments and your insights into how to apply these principles of social media marketing and branding to the way we portray ourselves online. Thank You're
3: you. Welcome. Hello, my name is Nick Galetti with our guest, Greg Trimble. Greg Trimble is an entrepreneur, member, missionary father blogger and digital marketer he founded an internet marketing agency in southern california he's also a featured contributor to lds living deseret news family share and other online publications he has been interviewed about his blog success by fox 13 news in salt lake city ksl and byu greg has spoken at various firesides and conferences in southern california utah australia and massachusetts he and his family live in Riverside, California. Welcome, Greg. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me, Nick. Absolutely. Some people may not know who you are uh, or have visited gregtrimble.com, but maybe you can tell our listeners just a little bit about yourself and how your expertise in your day job intersects with your social media activities.
4: Yeah, so I found myself doing internet marketing and then finding that there was this great need inside the church for the internet, for doctrine, for history, for things that a lot of people are online on social media searching for. I saw that we are just getting dominated online, the church as a whole. About when was this that you kind of started? March 10th, 2014. I know the exact date. For some reason, I never remember dates. And for some reason, I remember that date. I sat down. It was a Saturday. My wife was gone at a women's conference or something, and I was watching the kids and they were watching Harry Potter or something, and I, I built a blog in about three to four hours and put out my first post. It was about people being fountains or drains. Didn't have any much to do with the church, but it was just a, a principle that I, you know, some lady was honking at me in the car for no, for no reason, just freaking out, you know, mad. And <laughs> so I, yeah I wrote about it and shared it, and I had no idea the fact that it would get shared and picked up, so...
3: You do internet marketing, advertising, that sort of thing, which to speak in in terms of the the person that doesn't know the the jargon, how do they go together? Internet marketing and and social media. Yeah. So in a business sense, my
4: first company, that IT company, that was actually how I built that company from a sales perspective, from getting new clients. I didn't like to get out and go to networking events. I like to sit at a computer and, and figure out how to drum up business that way. And so I started doing what's called search engine optimization, SEO. And what that means is that you write articles so that you can find yourself at the top of the search engines for certain terms. I did that for about a year and found ourselves at the top of the search engines for about anything we wanted to rank for. And that was actually my first introduction to internet marketing. I was able to build a business using internet marketing techniques And then was able to sell that business because it grew so fast. And then that translated into wanting to do those services for other clients. And then that translated into, I want to write to help people
3: and uh, affect people's lives. Here you are now wanting to do your own blog. And that kind of is a transition in a sense because you're doing SEO for, in part, your business, your businesses. Right. right. But now you're also adding in the idea that you're doing this for church-related subjects and and those sorts of things. From what we could tell, you've received over 7 million page views Mm -hmm. to your blog, and you have tens of thousands of social media followers, and this was in just a few years. Yes. So what kind of responsibility do you feel now as opposed to what you maybe thought you would have felt when you (laughs) first started this thing? I feel a tremendous responsibility to put out
4: content that's accurate, not to mislead anybody, to be genuine to make sure that I'm in harmony with the teachings of the church and what I believe. I also feel a responsibility to give people a platform to where they can discuss cordially. And so I do very little censoring of my blog. If you'll look at the comments on some of them, it's brutal sometimes. I don't allow profanity or anything that's pornographic or illegal or anything like that. But I think it's important to create an atmosphere wherein people can have A debate or a conversation or discussion so that those things can be addressed earlier. Now, you mentioned
3: that you moderate the comments and that you are fairly liberal or forgiving, even in Mm -hmm. cases sometimes, with those. How is it that you are able to help kind of manage those negative comments and not maybe even enter the fray of that battle that sometimes ensues on comment sections and blogs? Yeah, so I try to
4: stay really positive. You will almost never find me arguing with somebody, even if they post something that is completely contradictory to what I believe, because it never works. I think some of the fruits of the Spirit, you know, long-suffering, gentleness, meekness, a soft answer turneth away wrath. I try to create a dialogue with people and I've actually seen people that come at me with things very hostile actually have their entire countenance changed to where there's a more open dialogue. And so that's what I try to do. Some specific things is I don't allow links to sites. I call it link juice. That's a form of search engine optimization. It creates a backlink wherein that will drive up a site that, that I don't agree
3: with. So, I, you know, those things. But. So you don't allow any Any links? For the most part. Okay.
4: That's links. That's not content. Okay. You can post content that I don't agree with, but links that go to sites that I would consider unsavory or sometimes dishonest or things like that, then I try to refrain from those.
3: Might even be some people out there that are wanting to start their own blogs. Yeah. And there are people thinking that they're going to put up their blog and they're going to get 7 million page views. Yeah. That's probably not fair. So to start out with some maybe some advice to someone who was going to start their own blog, how is it that you were able to write to an audience that was obviously broad enough to get 7 to 8 million unique page hits? Right. I'm glad you actually bring that up because the very first blog
4: that I wrote had nothing to do with the church. It had to do with just core principles of being a better person. Some of the other blogs that have gone viral are blogs that had nothing to do with Mormonism, the church, again, it's just a very broad, principle-based topic. One of the blogs that went the most viral, which I felt created a pretty big impact with people, was a blog about Carl's Jr. and their commercials. That was a blog that hundreds of thousands, it's probably 700,000 or so people And it it set off a a tweet storm with a tag that was embedded in the blog that tagged Carl's Jr. about the fecundity of their commercials, right? And there were a lot of people both inside and out of the church that found that, evidenced by a lot of the comments by people that were not LDS, but that still found those commercials revolting. I wrote it from the context of my kids were actually at a restaurant where these commercials were placed in front of them at a kid's restaurant. You know, it was just strange. And so that was able to reach such a broad audience. When I initially started my blog, and this is still the mission, it was a way for me to do missionary work and reach out to people of other faiths and friends that are outside of my geographic reach. I have been frustrated with living in the same city, having the same circle of friends, same people at work, and not being able to reach enough people. And I always said, when I was on my mission, was like, when I come home, I'm still going to be a missionary. I found myself not being able to be that great of a missionary because there's just not that many people to reach. Once you talk to your neighbors and they're not interested or or whatever, but bringing the church into a, a light and writing from a standpoint of not making it weird, not making it just so overtly Mormon and the jargon and all that stuff is just making it very general that that people can say, identify with, hey, these are normal people and they're good people and they want good things. And oh, by the way, there's an article where it's a little bit more doctrinally oriented. They're much more likely to read it, having already built a relationship of trust with the things that I've written as far
3: as values and morals that they also agree with. This is not meant to be an LDS centric site. And that's part of how you were able to get so many hits. From millions of people because there's, let's face it, there's not that many English-speaking members of the church that would have uniquely visited your page. So you are getting a lot of hits from different areas, different cultural backgrounds, and what we might assume is different religious backgrounds. Oh, yeah, right. And you Definitely. say that there's even comments to that on your blog that some yeah. people come on and say, I'm from this in this faith. Yeah, even lots of pastors from other faiths. In
4: fact, there's a, a pastor in upstate New York by the name of Doug Dwyer. And he's become an amazing friend of mine. He runs a congregation of eight 900 people and agrees with so much of what we teach and agree with and identifies with it and just has a little, a few, you know, doctrinal disagreements but it doesn't mean that we can't completely agree on things that are of great import, religious freedom and degrading morals
3: and, and so many of those things that we want yeah. you know, a future for our kids. You talk about this kind of, let's call it a narrow audience of people that blog for Mormons. Yeah. There's an even like narrower subset of people that engage in Mormon scholarship. Yes. I know our hope with the LDS Perspectives podcast is to be able to take that scholarship and kind of redistribute it to an even wider audience. In what ways do you see the role of social media being able to amplify the message of scholarship?
4: So I think there's two things. Number one, they have to start using social media. (laughs) I I was actually just at BYU a week ago meeting with a a professor, a very well-known professor, and we were discussing how the things that have been written, the things that he's written, he's been uh, dismayed at the lack of readership, right? You spend six months putting together something that's just amazing, really is good stuff if you read it. And then he'll say, it's only been like two people that have read it. (laughs) Yeah. Right? And it's same thing. I sat in a living room with a guy that has actually published a few for the Mormon interpreter and A lot of those are long and very scholarly and written very perfectly. I think you work on it for months and months and then you publish it. And they've expressed the frustration that nobody reads it. Why is it that they don't read it? It's because they're not on social media. And it's because some of those things are written in a tone and with jargon and with a technical way about them that isn't conducive to people out in the world with generally an average of a 6th to 8th grade education, right? If you had institute directors and CES teachers who are teaching the gospel daily get online and blog and then use social media to put their lessons out and then to do it in a language and in a jargon that people can identify with, you would see the gospel spread online quickly. Because they know how to talk to that yes. demographic and to teach it in a way that people will identify and understand with. I get the grammar police on me a lot. And that's because some of the things I'll write, I'll take 15 to 20 minutes, 30 minutes, maybe an hour to write. And I'll miss a couple things here and there. But I also will go through and read it. And instead of looking for things to make more technical, I'll actually find things to make less technical. One of the best pieces of advice I got was from a professor. In my last year of college, English professor in business college. And she said, write as if you were having a conversation with people. I mean, the way that we're talking right now. That's how you write. That's how I write. That's how I want to write. What you see is a lot of people, the way that they have a conversation with somebody, they don't write that way. They start writing very methodically and very technically, and there's no conjunctions. And, you know, and so I'll actually go through and say, oh, do I sound like that? If I don't sound like that, I'm creating a conjunction. So You're put I, I just one said in. right now, I'm right. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm not gonna say I am going to create a conjunction, <laughs> right? Right. Those are some of the things that you know, if I could give tips and tricks, I've written a book called The Virtual Missionary. And what I do in that book is I completely take and break down, sort of reverse engineer everything that I've done from March 10th, twenty fourteenth to today. All page views, comments. Approaches, writing styles, every single thing that I've done in that time, I want to give it to people, not hold it to myself. Which you see a lot out there. They're worried about their brand or you know (laughs) whatever you know. So that so that nobody else can have readers, only them, right? So I I want to give it to everybody so that we can have an army of bloggers that go out and spread the gospel message, so that we're not getting dominated online. And so I give away uh, search engine optimization tricks and tips and and structure and blog and all the things that you could, that anybody could ask for. And because when I go and speak at these places, that's the question I'll get is, I want to do this, but how do I get started? And there's no way I can take 30 minutes to do it. So I've put it
3: together in sort of a manual that people can follow when they're starting. Curious more about this virtual missionary book. And obviously you can't give away too much. Yeah. Because it hasn't come out yet,
4: but. I'll give it away as much as you can <laughs> if you have like 12 hours of
3: podcasts. There you go. <laughs> But for me, I know how when I was a traditional missionary, an in-person missionary, yeah. as opposed to a virtual one, that there was a certain number of comments that I would get, and, and I would have to learn how to kind of shake those off, move on, find the next person. As a person that engages online, virtual missionaries, you'd coin it, you still get comments. How yes. are they similar? How are they different? How do you manage your responses to that emotion? Yeah.
4: It's harder coming from a member of the church than it is from a critic. I can deal with that. I'm, I've been used to that. Trying to respond to them in a very positive way to have the best possible outcome is something that's kept me going because anytime I've engaged in negativity or debate or sort of going back and forth criticizing, it's really drained my soul and, and it's it's made me not want to to do that. I don't want to get online and fight with people. Yeah. I've tried to incorporate that into everything that I write. And with me specifically, I'm serious. I always tell my wife, I'm just, it just seems weird that I'm in this position, but I'm just a random, normal guy out of Riverside, California. I failed high school English. It was the only class subject that I failed. I stink at writing. I'm completely under scrutiny by the grammar police. I didn't know what a blog was. I had no Facebook follow. I had nothing going online. I think the key is just being persistent in writing, not worrying about what other people say about you, trying not to, that's easier said than done, but sure. trying not to and just understanding that everybody's going to have an opinion about what you say and just continuing to keep going and to try to be positive with the negativity that's going to come your way so that you do keep going because you've stopped and you've been silenced and that's, that's not good.
3: Yeah, well, I'm looking forward to your virtual missionary book coming out because I need all the help I can get in that area. (laughs) But we'll put links to that along with other resources, including your website at the posting of this episode at ldsperspectives.com. And uh, I want to thank you for coming in and and sharing your expertise with us. You bet. Thank you so much for having me.
0: be sure to check out ldsperspectives.com to subscribe, catch up on past episodes, download transcripts, and find show notes. LDS Perspectives podcast is not affiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed represent the views of the guests or the podcasters alone. While the ideas presented may vary from traditional understandings or teachings, They in no way reflect criticism of LDS church leaders, policies, or practices.